right, you've got a doozy, huh? My daughters turned to me and said, you're preaching on all this? I think partly because of the, the size, but uh, also, you know, you, you get into certain parts of this, especially verses 8 through 11 in chapter 17, and before long you feel like you're all twisted around. What in the world is going on there? But I think hopefully you'll see if, if you can first start out with seeing what's obvious and clear uh, and kind of stay there at, at the beginning, uh, some of this actually falls pretty, pretty good. Um, one of the other ways to think about this, though, uh, you know, communication is an interesting thing, right? You can, you can say the same point in different forms, right? Different genres, right? But you're, you're going after the same point. So, so we could say, uh, tell somebody, you know, you should never take your opponents too lightly because that type of pride will actually lo- lead to you losing, right? Or lead to a loss, right? You can just say that. That Stated clearly, don't take your opponent lightly because pride comes before a fall or something like that, right? Um, or you could tell someone the tale of the tortoise and the hare, right? That it's communicating the very same truth. It's just in story form, right? Uh, let, if you could, turn back to 1 John. We preached through 1 John uh, at the beginning of covid but let, let's take a, a quick look at a couple of the things that he writes in a nice, simple letter. First John chapter f- uh, 5, verse 19. There he writes, We know that we are from God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Right, that's just stated very simple and clear, right? We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Uh, or you could just state that, or you could kind of paint this otherworldly picture where everybody's marked, and they got marks on their forehead, on their hands. Some are marked for God, some are marked for the enemy. And then uh, demonstrate how, in picture form, the enemy actually rules the world, right? Uh, if we saw this in chapter 12, where the, the dragon keeps getting uh, defeated, and yet he still kind of sends terror on the world through these three agents through this beast that he works through that comes out of the out of the sea and then the second beast that comes out of the earth and and then this prostitute that we'll see today that he he still rules the world the world is under the uh, authority and the power of the enemy but through these crazy creatures right now i actually thought if kirk's still in uh, junior high preaching mode we should have him behind here uh, acting out this scene of the the woman riding around this seven-headed beast and ten horns so when we get to that part kirk just right here <laughs> but that's, that's what John is doing. He's com- communicating the very same things that he wrote in his letter in one sentence. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That's very clear. But he's also painting a picture for us. Because of the picture, you're supposed to experience it in the movement with John. Or turn back to chapter 2 in that same letter, First John. A very famous uh, section here, beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world. And if you remember our time in First uh, John, the world being the system that is under the, the devil's authority that is anti-God. It's a way of enjoying, the, enjoying all of the things of life apart from God. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that's in the world, this anti-God system, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, That's not from the Father, but that's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. 
He said, John can say that very clearly. Do not love the world. The world is very uh, alluring. It's very enticing. It will lure people in and then trample on them. And yet the world is passing away. Right? He says it real nice in paragraph form, very simple for us to understand. Or he can paint a picture of a prostitute who's all decked out with jewels and lures people in by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life that lures people in. And yet, she gets destroyed. The world is passing away. And therefore, come out of her. That's what he says in 1814. That's, that's where this whole thing is coming. Get out of her. Move out of her. That's the world. Don't let her reign over you. Right? That's, that's what he's trying to do in these, this great picture of this woman riding around this beast that's going to be defeated. John wants us to see that the world, the world is enticing. It is powerful to lure you in. And when it does, it will trample on you. It will ride on you just like the woman rides on the beast, the kings of the earth. And then it will sit on all the people, the waters, sit on, trample on all the people, suck you in, and then destroy you. And John says, but don't be afraid because the world is going to be destroyed. That system, the anti-God system is going down. It's going to self-destruct. So come out of her, my people. Come out of her. So that's where this, this whole vision, I think, fits in. Uh, if you think about uh, where it's fitting in the book, uh, we just saw the seven bowls in chapter 16. Uh, the, the, seven, the sixth and the seventh bowl actually deal with the judgment, uh, and he calls up Babylon, the, the splitting of the city. Right? So what, what's happening here, if you remember, uh, as we've been going through Revelation, we keep using that illustration of the football, uh, the football uh, play and the being replayed. So we saw the the time from the, the resurrection, uh, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, his ascension to glory, uh, all the way to the second coming, right? The, se the seven seals, then he starts over. The seven trumpets, then he starts over. The seven signs, then he starts over. The seven bulls, all kind of doing this recapitulation, right? This, what happens in the following, from this point forward, it's kind of giving a quick eye towards the, the time period after the resurrection of Jesus, and then it it's like goes in slow motion right near the end of the play. So it sort of be like watching the play again in replay. And, you know, the, the guy's running, running real fast for the ball and all of a sudden it's... And so it's real, the focus all gets put on this final part here. And that's what's going to happen in the rest of the book is the slow motion replay of several, several first defeats of God destroying the enemy and then the victory of God's people. So one, one other thing to see here, if you move forward to chapter 21, just so you see the similarities here, John, in the rest of the book, is going to show two women. One is the bride of the lamb, and one is the prostitute. Now look for similarities. Uh, we're going to read just verses 21-9 uh, through 11, and so you can see the contrast, what John is doing here. Um, 21.9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, which is, again, from the bowl plagues of chapter 16. This is one of the angels. And he spoke to me saying, come, come here, John. I, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
having the glory of God, its radiant, uh, its radiance like a most rare jewel. Now you have several key uh, comparisons here. First, one of the angels, this is what we'll see again in chapter 17, one of the angels from uh, the, the bull plagues comes to John and says, hey, come here, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you a woman. Here in 21, I'm going to show you the, the bride, the wife of the lamb. These are for all the, the followers of Jesus. And then it, he says he's carried away in the spirit. Here he's carried to a mountain because a mountain is a place of victory, a place of strength, right? That's where the, the lamb is. We, we saw that earlier in the book. He's standing on Mount Zion. Mountain in the scriptures is a place of authority and strength. So he, John gets carried away to a mountain and he's going to be shown the bride. But what does he see? He sees a city. What, what do we see about the city? It's all decked out. It's got all these jewels. It's beautiful. Contrast that with chapter 17. One of the seven angels from the seven bull plagues comes to John and says, Come here, John. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you a woman. Then he t is carried away in the spirit again. Where is he carried to? A wilderness. A place of destitution. It's not carried to a mountain because this is going to be the place of judgment. I'm going to show you the judgment of the woman. And later we're told the woman is the city. So we have a contrasting women. We have two contrasting cities. And what do we see about the woman? She's all decked out. She's got all these jewels. So there's these very two clear contrasts that John is doing about this woman. This world, these two worlds that God has uh, that, are, that we experience. There's the world that we live in now, but there's also God's world, right? It's God's people, the bride. So that's how you can, I just wanted you to see the contrast, and we're going to walk through, uh, try, try to make sense of how John paints this picture, and how do we, uh, how do we experience uh, or reflect on it here. Uh, so John first, you know, starts out uh, telling us, this angel comes to him, says, come, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And she's seated on many waters. Now, if, even if you don't, uh, it's okay if you don't know this, but in Jeremiah, uh, there's this allusion to Babylon, who's, who's by the many waters. That's how Babylon was described uh, in the Old Testament, because they had this great river there, and it was by the, by the waters. Which later, we're going to be told that the prostitute is Babylon, so you don't have to catch that. But right off the bat, we're being told, I'm going to show you this prostitute, which is a city, this woman who's by the many waters. Now, the, pe the, the kings of the earth have mingled with her. Right? They become under her authority. They're getting drunk with the sec her sexual immorality. They're, they're committing this. They're, they're getting into bed with the, the prostitute, you might say. And they also tells us that the dwellers on earth, the people, the people, the people of the world, have become drunk with her sexual immorality. So John already, right off the bat, has told us what this vision is going to demonstrate. It's going to be about this woman who's going to be, represent a city or the, the, the place of uh, the enemy. It's this world system that has authority over the kings of the earth and the people of the earth. They, they, have, gotten, they have come underneath the prostitute. They've, they've gotten into bed with her, and it's going to be about the judgment brought on her. So then John gets carried away uh, by the Spirit into this wilderness. And what does he first see? He sees this woman. This woman's on, sitting on this beast. The beast has seven heads. Come on down, Kirk. Here we go. <laughs> she, she's sitting on the beast, which, again, uh, uh, when you're sitting on something, that, that, that demonstrates authority over it. 
Uh, so she's sitting on this beast. This beast has seven heads and ten horns. This is the, the, the beast that came out of the, the sea in chapter 13. It's this scarlet beast. And we're then told about the woman. The woman is, she's completely decked out. She's, 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 she's got purple and scarlet cloth, which in that time is very, uh, very expensive. It, it's alluring. It, it, this, is, this, is, this is what, you know, the key people in society get to wear this stuff. So she, she's, she's attractive. And she's not only her clothes, but then all of her jewels. She's got gold on. She's got uh, pearls and we're told that she has jewels. Like, this woman is totally decked out. Uh, and then we're told that she has a name written on her forehead, and it says, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So it's probably not a tattoo you want one of your family members to get on there, right? But mother of prostitutes and mother of earth's abominations is meant to demonstrate that all evil, all immorality flows from her. She's the mother. She gives birth to all evil in the world, right? Now, again, we're in a picture. We're not expecting some, this actual, the play out like this way. John's painting a picture, this world system, this, the, the devil's playground. It's, it's, the, it's the place that gives birth to all evil and earth's abominations. All sexual immorality just comes out of her. And not only that, we're told then, uh, where, where are we? Uh, verse 6, the woman's then drunk. So John sees her and she's, maybe she's staggering or she's got a little bit of slur in her speech or whatever it is. He looks at her and he, she's all decked up, but she's clearly, she's drunk. And what is she drunk from? Well, it's not, it's not too much, you know, Miller Lite or, you know, whiskey or something like that. It's drunk from blood. She's drinking the blood of the martyrs, the followers of Jesus. Now, John is, is somewhat, uh, you might say he's awestruck, partially because her beauty, but partially also because she's terrifying. Right? Because there's, there's almost like, as you look at her, there's like two options. Either someone is enticed by her and swept away, or she drinks your blood. I mean, in the vision, right? That's, that's the two options. So John, uh, coming from the God's people, the church, think, like, that's the way I would envision him thinking, like, just like Daniel in the Old Testament, marveling at some of the visions he sees, dis like, distraught, where Daniel almost feels sick from the vision, seeing what's coming. Because this woman, this prostitute, is so enticing to pull people away from the gospel to reject Christ and, and somehow get in bed with this woman instead, get in bed with the world, pulling people away. And if they don't, if they remain true to Christ, what happens? They, they are martyred. So these are the two options. So John is marveling. Now, one thing we should at least ask is why, why use the vision of a prostitute? to talk about the world. I mean, he, he could have chosen a lot of other, like, pictures, right? I mean, he, he talks about a beast, the, the, the snarly, hideous beast, and as well as, like, the, the nice-looking beast that's, that's got the voice of the dragon, right? The, the nice one that just got the two horns. Uh, I think the prostitute is, is a very fitting uh, image. 
Um, it, let's just go backwards for a minute. Let's go back to Proverbs 7. So we get a little bit of a flavor of the adulterous woman uh, and how Scripture uses this um, as well. And then hopefully we can make a little bit of a reflection here on what, why is John using a prostitute. So if you have your Scriptures, go back to Psalm, uh, Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7 is about the adulterous woman, and it, it, the beginning portion, uh, you see that the, the author of Proverbs 7 talking about uh, how he sees this simple man, this young man who's unwise, walking down the street, and he's walking right where it's known is the adulterous woman. And he calls him, that's, that's a young man lacking sense. He's not being wise because he probably thinks he can withstand the temptation. He probably wants to flirt with the danger. He probably likes the idea of her her trying to woo him. But he's in big trouble. And so beginning in uh, verse 10, uh, we'll read that. Behold, the woman meets him. She's dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. Now of this young man, she seizes him. She kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. In other words, she's saying, it's you I've been searching for. I've been looking for you, and look at how pious I am. I've did, done the sacrifice, and isn't God on our side? This, this, was, this was meant to be. How providential that we've met. You're the one I've been looking for. Of verse 16, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon everything's ready for us come on come to my house it's all waiting verse 18 come let us take our fill of love till morning let us delight ourselves with love for my husband is not home he's gone on a long journey he took a huge bag of money with him at at full moon he will come his days maybe weeks away Look, this will be our little secret. No one will possibly find out. We have so much time. Everything's ready. I've been waiting for you. And now look at the author, what he says about this. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. You know, the ox going to the slaughter, right, is just, it's a normal day. Probably getting herded off to go get some, some grass and eat the grass out in the field today. And that's what he describes the man, being seduced by this woman, lured in. And look at what it says in verse 23, right at the end. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And so the scriptures then use an image like this throughout the Old Testament and right here at the end of the, the scriptures to talk about as God's people actually get in bed with the world 
as they are wooed from the, by the world away from God, from coming out from underneath his wing, it is like prostituting ourselves. It's like getting in bed with the world. The world is like a prostitute. And we give ourselves. We become the adulteress. And we have given ourselves away. It's a shocking image. It's meant to shock us. Because one of the most offensive things is for marriage to break down like that, right? Two people come together in a marriage covenant and say, my body is only for you. I will not give myself to any other. And as we see at the end of the book of Revelation, there's a bride being prepared for Christ. Right? That's the, the God's people. And so he uses this powerful image that he's given to us to experience in life. And to say, when we give ourselves to the world, it's the same way as a husband or a wife leaving the marriage covenant and giving their body to someone else. It's meant to shock us. And that is what the world system is. The world system is all decked out, all beautiful, enticing, and wants to lure us in. But we don't know it. It will destroy us. Now again, if we go back to Revelation 17, John is, is marveling at this. He's, you know, in one sense, in one sense enticed by her, in another sense terrified by her, and what's to come. And the angel then says, hold on, John, hold on, hold on. Why, why are you marveling at her? Let me, let me tell you what's going to happen. Let me reveal the mystery to you of what's going to happen to the woman and to the beast that she's seated on with the seven heads and the ten horns. And so he's going to tell us that uh, in this more confusing section here in verses 8 through 11. So verse 8, if you just read that real quick, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Look at verse 11. And for, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So both times here, you've already picked up the theme, hopefully, uh, that he's going to show us that the beast is going to be destroyed. This beast is headed for destruction, the beast that she's riding. Uh, but... He's using, here's, this is where it gets kind of confusing. What's the was? The beast was and is not and is to come. This is where we're not going to pull out uh, the chart of history and find out uh, all the different leaders and try to point to them and stuff like that because I don't think that's what John is doing. Uh, in one sense, if you remember in chapter 13, this same, same beast with the seven heads, ten horns, if you remember he had a mortal wound, uh, as, if he, as if it was mortal, but then he was healed, remember? And that caused all the people to marvel at the beast and worship the beast. Uh, that could be what's going on here. It's, it, it, there it's uh, painted as a, a parody of Christ. It's, it's like mimicking Christ to lure people in, and that it destroys them. So that could be what's going on there with he was and is not and is to come, and yet he is going to rise and go to destruction. That would be the parody on early in the book for chapter 1. We're told uh, about Christ that he was and he is and he is to come, and we're also told that he's the living one who reigns, right? Here this would be the parody. Uh, he, this beast was, is not. This is like the, 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 the death and uh, resurrection. He's going to be raised, go right to destruction. It's just the opposite, right? That could be what's going on, sort of like this uh, aggressive mimicry, if you know that. I just learned that this past week, and I feel smart. Aggressive mimicry, that's when you, uh, as animals do this, you know that one from, uh, uh, I think it's from, is it ne what's that Nemo movie called? Is it Saving? 
Finding Nemo, there you go. I think there's one of these in there. It's the uh, hunchback anglerfish, where he's like, it's really deep below the sea. They've got all these crazy teeth. And they have this thing coming out, and it's like, dangles this like thing that flashes, or it's got light. You, you remember this part of the movie? Yeah? So it's, it's acting like something else to lure you in, and ah! Right? It's an aggressive mimicry. It's mimicking something here. So that's what, that's what could, could be going on. This, this beast is mimicking Christ to lure people in, people in, and only to destroy them, right? To, to, to aggressively take them over. So that's one idea. Uh, but also, uh, I think at least to be included, what's going on here is also to say that, that his power is limited. Because uh, this actually gets... Uh, Pick back up in chapter 20, talking about the dragon as he's chained up. In one sense, we look theologically at, at the cross, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the devil was given a decisive blow. Prior to that, it seemed like he had more reign. He was. He, just, he, had, he was sort of like unleashed, you might say. He just had free reign. At the death, burial, resurrection, he, he received a decisive blow and he is not. He does not have that authority anymore. Now, we don't want to say that exclusively, right? Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that uh, he is the God of this world. We just saw in 1 John he, that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So it's not like he doesn't have any authority, but it's, he's chained up, he would say. He is not, and yet he's going to be released in order to come back and have one final battle. But it's going to be so quick. Uh, the way that, that John describes this, he just keeps losing so quick. Because as we go on uh, in the middle of verse 8, the dwellers of earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they're going to marvel at when they see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now, John, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Those seven heads, they're seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They're also seven kings. Now, again, there's... A, Lots of discussion on this piece. The seven, seven mountains could be referring to Rome. Rome was known as a place, the, the place of seven hills. That's possible. Uh, the other possibility is, is, as I said, mountains are a place of authority, a place of reigning, a place of stability. Even when mountains are talked about not as like a kingdom in the book, it's, like, it's, it's a shocking thing when the mountains crumble or they're tossed into the sea, right? That's because mountains are stable. Or that's where the dwellers on earth went to hide themselves. Remember when the hide, hide us from the face of, of Christ? They go hide in the mountains because mountains are the stable place. So it, probably what it is, it's a slight kind of eye towards Rome, is, would be my guess. But even remember seven. Seven is completion. And he also tells us that it's seven kings. It's probably talking about the, the kingdoms of the world that are stable, that are under the authority of the woman. The woman is seated on them. And then he describes them. Five of them have already fallen, right? Five are, five are fallen. One currently is, and one is yet still to come. Now, this could be related to the was, or was and is not and is to come. It's sort of like, well, he's not totally was not, or is not, but it's, his power is limited. That could be. Or it could be kind of thinking of seven we're kind of at this place in history where five are already down. There's one is right now and one more is to come. This is, John, this is, this is coming to a close. We're near the end here. Sort of like the sixth and seventh trumpet, sixth and seventh seal, where the focus gets put on there. That's the other thing that could be going on there. 
Uh, either way, I think when you put all these together, it's, what he's trying to paint a picture is, here is that, that the world, as she rides this beast, the power is, is, is much more limited than you think, John. She's not in ultimate control. The beast is not in ultimate control. God is the one in control. And their authority is short-lived. There's going to be a f- this final kind of unleashing. It's going to be so quick. Watch how quick it's done. If you look back in verse 10, there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. That's this exact phrase that gets used of the dragon in chapter 20. When he gets unleashed from the bottomless pit, it's only for a little while. Because he gets destroyed. And now John's going to do close to the same thing with the horns. Uh, Verse 11, As for the beast... Uh, that was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. I, I think what's going on there is sort of like the beast is kind of the, the main piece, right? And then he's got these heads coming off and then the horns coming off, however that's supposed to look. Uh, when he says this belongs to the seven, it's like it's of the same flavor. Uh, but it almost, it's almost, I, I think, going in the parody, it's sort of like he's, he's like the king of kings. Those are seven kings, but he's the king of the kings. They all come from him. And then the ten horns are, are kings. He's, he's the king of the kings. But again, this is like mimic, uh, aggressive mimicry. Uh, verse 11, then, so it, it, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. Here we go again. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw, they're ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but when they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, this is a brief moment, Together with the beast, they're of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. They'll make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. This is this John. This is this takes wisdom. To, yes, she's she's gloriously beautiful. Yes, she hates the church. But John, this is no match, right? This is this is not like Hulk Hogan going up against Andre the Giant, where they're like, you know, they're pretty they're pretty close, right? This is Hulk Hulk Hogan going up against a two year old. This, this, is not, this is not going to be a big deal. Christ is in absolute control. The world is limited. The enemy is limited. And the battle will be brief. Why? Because, verse 14, He is Lord of lords. The Lamb of God is. He is the King of kings. Not the beast. Christ is. He's the king of kings. And those who are with him, they are the called, they are the chosen, and they are the faithful. The angel said to me, now the waters that you saw, which we actually haven't seen in the vision, uh, now, now there's waters, the, women, the woman is seated on waters, again, a, having authority over them. There are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. We've seen that many times throughout the book. This is, the, this is global. This is all the people of the world. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, they'll hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So what actually happens there, John is saying, look, the whole thing's going to self-implode. At some point, even the kings of the earth who were seduced by the world system and the peoples of the earth that were seduced by the world system, they'll wake up. They'll love her, but they'll also hate her, and they'll consume her. Sort of like you, you might think of like uh, someone that's maybe addicted to something. 
And it's sort of like this, this moment where they, they absolutely hate it. They, they love it because it gives, it gives them something that they're longing for, and yet they hate it. And so, you know, maybe they pour out all the, the, all the bottles down the drain. Like, I hate you. You're destroying me. Or think of a, a man called, uh, caught in an adulterous relationship with a woman. And, you know, she's providing something that he, he thinks that he needs out there. And eventually, as it goes on, it's, it's starting to crumble. Everything's being destroyed. And so what does he do? He goes and offs her. And as that happens, it, as you see in the rest of the, uh, in chapter 18, it's those, the, the kings and the, uh, the merchants, in one sense are celebrating the prostitutes uh, destroy, uh, being destroyed, and yet they're also mourning her. And so it would be like the man caught in adultery when he finally, he offs the woman. And in one sense, he's deeply sad because what he, what he wanted is now gone. And in another sense, he's happy because that can't destroy him anymore. Finally, it's done. That's, that's what John is painting the picture here. The, the, the world, the whole system's going to self-implode, John. It will do it on its own. Why? And he tells us why. Right there in verse 17. Because God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Again, contrasted with the holy city, Jerusalem. So again, I think the, I think the, the whole picture is meant to tell John, give us this theological reality that the world is enticing, it is powerful, it hates the church. The, the enemy, uh, God used, or uh, I'm sorry, the devil using this beast to carry out the plans, which, which are the, the, the horns of the kings of the earth, of the people in power, as well as the, the people on earth, the dwellers on earth. They, they also get in bed with the world, and they want to destroy the church, and yet we need not be afraid. But if you go down to 18.4, I think this is where John really wants to get his audience. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her. Do not love the world or the things in the world. I think that's John's whole goal in part of this. Or in whole goal in part of this. Uh, that sounded weird, coming out. Anyhow, that's, that's where he's headed. That's his aim. Come out of her. So my question is this. I think if, you just, if that's your understanding of the passage, that John's trying to paint that the world is alluring, it's enticing, it's quite terrifying, he, and, and the enemy wants to destroy us through the world system, and we're not supposed to get in bed with the world. Like, I think that's not really like, earth-shattering, right? We've heard that. Uh, John told us that in his first letter. If that's... True, I don't think that's new to us. The question is, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to come out of the world? Not that we actually leave physically. We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. That's how Jesus prays, right, in John. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Why is it so hard? Why do we keep getting sucked in by the prostitutes' alluring uh, calls? Why is... Uh, when I was thinking about that, that old song, uh, You Really Got a Hold on Me, came to mind. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Remember those lines? I don't like you, but I love you. Seems that I'm always 
thinking of you. Oh, 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 you treat me badly. I love you madly. <laughs> you really got nice. Kirk is shaking his head no. Sam's got his phone up with a light. <laughs> the last line, I love it. I love the last uh, verse there. I want to leave you. Don't want to stay here. Don't want to spend another day here. Oh, oh, oh. I want to split now. I can't quit now. You really got a hold on me. Is that not our relationship with the world, though? I hate the world system, and yet I can't leave it. It keeps providing me something. So why is it so hard? I had a list of 14. We're going to go with five. So, first one being that she's truly attractive. Right? She, she really promises something that I actually prefer sometimes. Right? She, she promises something immediately tangible. And it's usually a lot easier. It's just easier to go in with the world versus resisting her. Partially because she's so relentless. She just never quits. You know, you would, you would hope, wouldn't it be great if we all just knew if, like, okay, if I resist the world uh, 25 times today, she'll put the brakes on. Wouldn't that be great? I, I think we could wake up every day and do that. Like, okay, 25 times I have to say no, and that'll be fine, and then she'll just be quiet. No, that does not happen. She is relentless. The world continues to come after you and after you and after you with such good pleasures. And so part of it, I think, is just simply having the right expectations, right? Expecting that today the world is going to be attractive to you. Like, it, there's something about the, the world's promises that will be very enticing. All right, if we leave here and we get into tomorrow and think like, oh yeah, we're strong, like that world's not going to get me, it's not going to fool me, like we're setting ourselves up for failure, right? Sometimes expectations are everything. We, we know we're going to go out there, the world's going to present us everything good and tasty, and yet we still must resist, right? But as long as we know, yeah, of course, that battle in me is something good. There's something, the reason that there's the, the lust of the flesh, right, is going after that. I'm expecting that because I know the world's going to present something good to me. Second, uh, why I think it's difficult to come out of the world, uh, because sometimes that line between, you know, rightly enjoying the world, right, that Ecclesiastes, I thought, was real helpful for this. Like, God calls us to enjoy him in the world, right? Or enjoy the world under him, Right? Sometimes that line from crossing over into a love of the world is not so obvious, right? Because a lot of the times where we get wrapped into the world, it's usually not things that are evil in and of themselves, right? I mean, it, it, can, be, it can be sports or some sort of hobby that you love. Enjoying God through that, and it can... All of a sudden, without you really knowing it, all of a sudden it's like, I'm obsessed with this, and this has become my God. Right? That, that line is not always so obvious. You know, money is, is, a, is a gift, right? There's, to have money is not evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evils. And that line is not always so obvious. 
And plus, when you add it to, sometimes our gauge of that, how we determine what side we're on, is, is sometimes we just keep that to ourselves. That's not always helpful, right, of, of what we're going to do with life or how we're going to take this job or we're going to spend our money this way or our time. And we just kind of just do, make those decisions ourselves. We make that judgment call ourselves because we're a very individualistic culture. We don't necessarily open, open ourselves up to someone and say, hey, you look at my schedule and tell me if I'm using it in a way that honors God. Or you look at the way I'm engaging in my, my hobbies and tell me, if, is, this, is this enjoying God through them or am I loving the world? Like, you help me discern that. Or we simply just look at horizontally, and as long as I'm not, well, I'm not doing what those people do. So I must not, I must not be, be taken to a wrong place. Whatever it is, that line is not so clear. So I think sometimes we can just kind of all of a sudden plop it over without really realizing it, right? So... Uh, one question that we could ask ourselves is, are we willing to invite someone that we believe walks with Jesus, are we willing to, to let them come in to our in, in home metaphorically here, right? And in, in to come and look and say, here's my bank account, here's my statement, what do you think? This is what I'm doing with my money. This is what I'm doing with my time. Are we willing to do that? To have someone else help be the judge on am I enjoying God rightly through the world, which, is, which God has given to us, versus am I loving the world? Are we willing to do that? Third, why is it so difficult? Uh, I think the place in history and the place geographically where we like, live, and most of us have grown up, uh, we rarely have to say no to ourselves. Right? That's, that's part of being, you know, being a part of a affluent society. You, there's a lot of uh, options for you. You don't have to say no to a lot of things. Uh, so I know Danica read a book years ago, it was a secular book, that just really encouraged you saying no to yourself at least once a day. I think that's pretty helpful. I mean, maybe, maybe that would be something you try this week. Just having to say no to yourself about something. Because many of us, we just don't have to do that. We can just kind of do what we want. And that's not, again, that's not evil, but it can, it can be hard then to actually say no to the world when we need to, when all we do is say yes, 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 yes. So that can be a good practice. Uh, number four, we only got two more here. Why is it difficult to come out of the world? Uh, it could be, you might say, we don't get out of our experience to discern normalcy enough. Uh, meaning, uh, he might, Kirk went back, back home this past week, right? He said he was eating uh, ice cream at a place uh, right by the farm. And he, for him, that was, you know, he, he doesn't live there anymore. He just said that was a weird experience. It was baking hot and smelt like cow manure, and I'm eating ice cream, right? Now, if you live there, you don't even smell that anymore, right? I mean, sometimes when you go on vacation and you come home, you're like, our house smells like this? Like, man... <laughs> Do other people smell it? Right? It's just a normal thing because you're used to it, right? And if we're used to it, we don't get out of normalcy. Sometimes it's hard to spot things where we actually have kind of tipped the scale. And all of a sudden, so sometimes it's just good to get out of normal, our, our normal routine so that we can spot something. Now, that's, you know, we talk, uh, Mary talking about a mission trip to 
go see the Salvianos. Like that's a, that's a great practical thing that happens in short-term mission trips. You usually experience the world in a very different place of the world, and you come home saying, man, I am changing about this about normal life. Because that I've I realized now that uh, something's a little bit off, right? And that's just one of the gifts of that. Now you don't have to travel like that in order to do that. You can do other things. Uh, I remember this was just uh, years ago when we, uh, you know, when we first married. We had cable and stuff. We cut it because just finances. Uh, that was really hard for me back in the day. I cut it because we were going. I was going back to seminary, and so we cut cable. And then I just like said no more TV for me because I was, I was a really bad student growing up so I, I knew seminar was going to be very hard for me so I cut off Xbox, cut off uh, football games and then just basically cut off uh, almost all TV exclusively. Well there was this one show that Danica and I used to watch called Whose Line Is It Anyways? You know this? This improv show? Oh, there was, they would have two shows on after one another. Almost every weeknight we watched both of them because we thought we were so busy we had time to watch TV like that. Um, so we would watch that, so, but then I noticed three, four months into not watching anything and just kind of having my head down in the books, we turned it on and all of a sudden what we're watching is like, they talk like that? Were they always using words like that? Were they always making jokes like that? And I was laughing at that? I shouldn't, I shouldn't be laughing at that. And it was only getting away from it that you can come back into the culture and you go, whoa, I shouldn't be laughing at what the world laughs at because it's not funny. Like it's making a mockery of something, take sexuality that God's given as a gift. I shouldn't laugh at misuse of that. Why would I do that? But again, it's just, there, there's other things you can do to say, you know what, I'm going to step away from this normal part of my life for a time just to help me kind of re-gauge things. That's one thing you can do. Uh, it can be as big as a short-term mission trip or just step away from something in life for a couple of weeks. All right, last, uh, I would say, uh, the last thing that came to me was, uh, we fail to drink ourselves full with the truth of God, which always leaves us thirsty. We're always thirsty, Right? In terms of spiritually, for for to be uh, to, to have our thirst quenched, and when we don't drink ourselves full with the truth of God, we are, we are going to find a substitute. There's this part in uh, Jeremiah two, where where God calls to the heavens to be appalled, be utterly shocked and uh, desolate. He says, because my two my people have created two e- or uh, committed two evils. The first evil is that they've deserted me the fountain of living waters. I was the one that was to provide, uh, give, or quench all their thirst. They've left me. And instead, what they did was they dug out cisterns by themselves that don't even hold water. So I was the living water that was to quench all their thirst. Instead, they, they dug this hole that can't even hold water. In our day and age, it would be sort of like if you were left as a castaway, right, on some little island, and there's a a five-gallon jug of fresh water over there, 30 feet from you, and you don't want to go walk over there and get it, so you'll keep drinking the salt water out of the ocean, which will kill you. God says they've deserted what's really going to fill them up, and they've chosen something else. And when we fail to drink the truth of God regularly, constantly, we will search for a substitute. Because we're thirsty people. So we must fill ourselves with the truth of God. And we, 
have the opportunity here. We'll just end with, with this, with this massive truth in 18.4. Look at it again. It says, come out of her, my people. It doesn't simply just say, come out of her. It doesn't say, come out of her, and then you'll become my people. This is about identity here. God saying, come out of her, my people. You belong to me. You're, you don't belong with that prostitute. You are my people. Come. Come out of her because you're my people. You are mine. And that's all of you who are bought by the blood of Christ. God says to you, come out of her because you're mine. You belong to me. We're, we're waiting for a wedding that, you, that you're headed to. You're my people. Come out of the world, my people. That is you, flock of God purchased by the blood of Christ. And this morning, let us remember that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we hold the elements that give us the promise, remind us of the promise that you are God's people. You belong to him. We do not belong to the world. As much as she tells us that we have to do her bidding, that we are under her authority, we are not. God says, you're my people. I've, given, I've taken out of your heart of stone. I've put in a heart of flesh. I've given you my Holy Spirit. You are mine. So this morning, as we partake of the Lord's table, uh, it is for all who follow Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, stumbling though we be, we walk in faith. If you're here this morning and you're living in unrepentant sin, we ask that you not partake. Or if you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you not partake. Scripture says that it would not be good for your soul. But if you're here this morning striving to walk in faith in Christ, we invite you to come again. Christian, you who worship Jesus as the Christ, be reminded this morning that you are called my people by God himself, not because of the week that you had, but because of the broken body of Jesus on your behalf, who became sin for you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after uh, giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Well, we know this week the battle will rage. The enemy wants to destroy us. Let us keep our sights on the shores of the celestial city. We have a wedding to go to. God calls us all who are in Christ, my people. And he will get us there because he has promised himself to carry us along the way. And that means you as well, you who have the Holy Spirit of God, to weather the storm. The Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let us stand and pray together. God, we confess our weakness to fight against the flesh and fight against the world, and we ask for the grace we need to fight uh, well this week, to strengthen ourselves and strengthen one another. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, for your work uh, in us. In Christ's name, amen.